going to be talking about pride today, which isn't a very favorite subject of most people. Uh, humility, the flip side is. But I want to start with a silly story. This is a silly fictional story that a pastor sent me some time ago uh, that relates to pride. And uh, so take it for what it is. Some of you have heard this before. But uh, a number of years ago, the uh, uh, Pope got a message from his cardinals concerning uh, a challenge by the Prime Minister of Israel. And the Prime Minister of Israel says, we want to show our unity and ecumenical spirit with you, and we would like to have a, have a golf match between the Pope and the Prime Minister of, uh, of uh, Israel. And the Pope said, that sounds great, but I've never even touched a golf club. Do we, don't we have a cardinal or somebody who's played golf? And they looked around, they didn't have any cardinals that played golf, but uh, the, one of the cardinals suggested, you know what, we have a very devout Catholic man who plays golf, his name is Jack Nicholas. And, uh, and if we make him a cardinal, uh, then he could play in your place. And so they made Jack Nicholas a cardinal, Cardinal Jack. And uh, he was going to play golf against the prime minister of, uh, of, of Israel. And so they went out and played the game, and they came back. And, uh, and Jack reported, Cardinal Jack reported to the pope and said, uh, it must have been your, your prayers because I had one of the best matches of my life, one of the best games I I, I had good drives, a great putting, I did great. That's, that's, a, that's a good news. And they said, I have some bad news, though. He said, well, what's the bad news? He said, well, Rabbi uh, Tiger Woods beat me by three strokes. <laughs> well, like I said, that's a silly story. Uh, but it shows the element of pride in the lives of all of us who want to win and want to be successful, want to be better than others. Uh, the pride is rooted in the hearts of all of us, and anybody that doesn't think so, that doesn't know themselves, or they're more proud than they can possibly admit. Pride is part of our, our fallen DNA, and it causes more problems than almost any other sin that's out there. Some believe it's almost the root of almost all sins. Pride is evidenced in a number of ways, but one of the key ways you'll find pride in your own life and identify it is by a critical spirit. It's when we look down on other people and see other people's way is not the right way if it's not our way, our way or the highway type of thing, you know. Or we, look, uh, or we just think that everybody else is doing wrong and we're highly critical of them, we're evaluating them in these critical ways. Pride then, of course, is a source of all sorts of problems between people. And that carries over to the church. Uh, the uh, conflicts within the body of Christ often go back to, uh, to pride and a critical spirit that goes with, with that. Uh, we see pride exhibited in this church at Corinth. So that's why I bring it up. It, this church is just full of arrogance. A very arrogant, arrogant church. A very prideful church. And it's evidenced uh, in a number of ways. But the one we're going to look at today is their criticism of spiritual leaders. And in particular, their criticism of the Apostle Paul. And we would think from our vantage point, why would be, anyone be critical of the Apostle Paul? He founded this church. He nurtured them. He taught them the word. He is their spiritual father. Why would they be so critical of him? And yet if you've read First and Second Corinthians, you find that both of these books are just filled with uh, Paul dealing with this issue of their criticisms of him, the apostle that the Lord has commissioned to minister to them. And so we're going to be looking at that today. And I, I'm going to just pinpoint two different reasons why this church is so proud and so critical of the Apostle Paul. Number one, first two verses, they misunderstood church ministry. They misunderstood church ministry. Uh, they, what they needed to know 
And what they had missed is what the Lord requires of all of us, and especially church leadership. What, do the, what does the Lord require? Let's start with verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. So let's start right there. It's very simple. Paul said, if you're going to look at me, you're going to look at my life, I want you to know something. You should regard us in this way. You should look at it this way. Not as the great apostle, not as the one who is going to, to give us the mysteries of Christ, not as the one who, who writes 13 books of the New Testament, not as the one who started churches all over the globe, uh, at least of the modern, uh, the ancient world. Not that person, but he said, I want you to look at me in this way. I want you to look at me as a servant of Christ. That shows the attitude that Paul is expressing here, the servant of Christ. When he says us, regard us in this manner, he probably in this context is speaking primarily of leadership. Those who give leadership to the local church and especially uh, to the church here. But it's applicable to all other believers. So if you don't believe that, just walk on over to chapter 12 later and notice the information there as Paul talks about the body of Christ and how it is to function as servants to one another, and how they're to minister to one another as the body of Christ. And so, everybody, this is applicable to every believer, but in particular here we're talking about Paul and the Corinthians, and he's talking about himself and the church leadership to a large degree. And the thing that's, that's interesting to us is that in church leadership, like because of the, how the church function. In church leadership, um, it functions differently than every other form of leadership on the planet. And that makes it very difficult sometimes to even know how to assess leadership because we all have, by default, this mindset of the world. So I want to look at two passages with you. First of all, Mark, go back to Mark chapter 10 and see that this is not a new issue for the church there or, or for Paul. This is an issue that goes back to Jesus. And when Jesus was trying to, de- to disciple his disciples and uh, prepare them for the future, uh, he says to them in, in verse 42 to 44 of chapter 10, as they began to talk about what a, uh, a leader should be in the body of Christ, the people of God, uh, he says, your idea of what that looks like is warped by the worldview of the world and must be radically shifted. So look at verse 42. Uh, it says, Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are, who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. He turned the whole thing on his head, right? Every view of leadership in the world, going ancient times and, de- and today, is that, is that the leadership functions at the top and, every, and tells everybody at the bottom what to do. And, the, and those that do that very well are the great people, the great leaders. And he turns that on his head and he says, if you're going to be a follower of me, if you're going to function in my church, my body, my people, then that's all must be turned the other way around. Your view has to be changed and you have to see yourself as the servant of all. The servant of all. Uh, ultimately, it is to be Christ-like. And so verse 45 is extremely important here. What was Christ's example? He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
This is the uh, key verse of Mark. And one of the very few verses really in the Gospels, the four Gospels, that deal with the purpose for why Jesus came. The clear, I, mean, I wouldn't say one of the only, but one of the clearest statements. He says he didn't come to serve. He didn't come for his own benefit. He doesn't come to get the, the uh, uh, platitudes of people. He came to serve. But what kind of service was he coming to give? His life a ransom for, for many. That word ransom is the word redemption. And so we understand that word well from the, from the rest of the epistles. Redemption is the idea that someone was in slavery and they've been set free. And so the Lord came because we were in slavery to what? To sin. Uh, we, are, we are slaves to sin. We're born slaves to sin. Our master is sin. And Christ came to set us free, to redeem us, to ransom us from sin. And so that's why he's come. And so, so we said here, if you're not a, be a believer, if you're not a Christian yet, uh, the scriptures are very clear. You are under the mastery of sin. Sin controls you. Sin calls the shots in your life. You are the slave of sin. And there's nothing you can do about it except be redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he came to, to take us out of that slavery and to set us free to serve him. And so as a Christian, we must ever be going back to that, folks, we must ever be remembering the gospel message that Jesus Christ has taken us from this, this bondage, this spiritual bondage to sin, that spiritual bondage to ourself and our sinfulness. And has taken us out of that and has set us free from the bondage of sin to serve him. And that's why Christ came, to come to set us free to ransom us. So it's sad to, to think that often in the church context, ancient and today, is that too many people think the church should be run like a business, like a secular business. And there's all sorts of seminars and conferences you can go to on how to run your church like a, like a business. And that's not how Christ wanted his church run. Uh, leadership is servanthood, just as Christ came to serve us. I want to go to another passage. I'll go back to the back of the New Testament to second or third John chapter nine. We don't go back to third John very often, so it might be fair, uh, fairly unfamiliar to you. But in third John chapter nine, we're going verse nine. There's no chapter nine. Uh, if you find chapter nine, you let me know later, and I'll talk to you about that. But there's only one chapter. People don't read it a lot. Very interesting little chapter, though. Uh, John, the another apostle, was having the same problem with the with this church he was writing to that Paul was having with the Corinthians. So this is not a new problem. This is an ancient problem. And as we look at the problem, he said, uh, I wrote, verse 9, I wrote something to the church. Okay, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Now notice, Diotrephes wanted to be on top. He wanted to be the spiritual head of the church. For this reason, if I come, verse 10, I will call attention to his deeds which he does unjustly accusing us. Notice he's attacking the Apostle John. Unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and forbids those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church. He is, he is a demagogue. He's a tyrant in this church. He pulls all the strings, and he's kicking people out of the church that are receiving missionaries in the context who are serving Christ, and he doesn't want them to. So he kicks them out of the church. Verse 11, Beloved, 
Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. He says, don't follow this man's example. Follow the example of the godly, the one who does good. So we have a problem in this church as well as we head back to 1 Corinthians. This is not a new thing. People who, didn't, who do not, who want to lead in a Christian context, that might be a church, a mission, a Christian organization, they want to lead, but they want to lead as the world leads, not as Christ taught us to leave. As we go back to verse 1, I've got one more thing I want to point out before we move on. He says, let, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. And I want you to note that because it's very easy to just read through that and miss it. But that is the key. He says, I am a servant of Christ. I'm not a servant of the church. I'm not a servant of people. I'm a servant of Christ. And that makes all the difference. The word for servant here is not the typical Greek word doulos, which is often translated servant or slave. It's a different word. It speaks of, a, of the under rower of a galley ship. If you've seen those movies and whatever, they have these old ships and, and they had the, the rowed by slaves and they have several decks down below where their slaves are and at the very lowest rung is where this particular servant rolls his, the ship. And of course, if the ship sinks, they're the first to die. Right? They're the lowest of the low. And Paul says, when, I, when you look at me, I want you to see me as a galley slave. As the lowest of the low. Paul is, is not exhibiting any form of pride here whatsoever. Don't, he's not saying, look at me, look at what I have done. He says, see me, regard me as a galley slave for the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is enough for me. That I can be a galley slave for the Lord Jesus Christ. The application here is that church leaders are, are ultimately then responsible not to people but to Christ, to the Lord himself. We can never measure our success in ministry then by the popularity of people, either pro or con, whether they like us or don't like us. That is not the final criteria. It's, it's what Christ thinks. I, I read a long book about Winston Churchill uh, last summer, and Winston Churchill led the than England through World War II, and he was a great hero. You know, everybody thought he was a great leader, and they did, and he was. What happened after World War II? They voted him out of office. <laughs> was he a, a better leader during the war and not afterwards? I don't know. But the people that he rescued, virtually saved by his own tenacity in some ways, voted him out of office shortly thereafter. But people don't figure this out. People are not the final criteria. Popularity is not. You can be very popular with people and be a lousy servant of Christ. And you can be a, a, a very unpopular with people and be a great servant of Christ. He is the servant of Christ, is what he's saying. Secondly, not only is he a servant of Christ, he's a steward of the mysteries. Verse 1, verse one goes on, in, uh, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward was also a slave, but a different kind of slave. He was an organizer. Uh, he ran the home. Uh, he administered things. He, he made the home function and so forth uh, as an overseer. He was a dispenser of, of, of the various provisions. He made sure things were being put out, the food was being taken care of, and all those kinds of things. This is what a steward was, a slave, but, all, but a different role that he played. And Paul said, I, I am a steward of the mysteries of God. 
Now this is important as well because the mysteries of God, remember what those are. The mysteries are always in the scripture, not something mystical, not something weird. It's, it mis the mysteries are those truths that Christ gives us that we would never ever know if he hadn't told us what they were. These are the secrets of God that have been revealed to us in scripture, primarily in the New Testament. Because Paul writes often about the mysteries of God. Christ talks about the mysteries of the kingdom. The mysteries that have been revealed to us in the New Testament. And that's Paul what's saying here. I am a revealer. I am a dispenser. I am a steward of the mysteries of Christ. Where did he get these mysteries? Direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Where do we get these mysteries? Direct reading of the New Testament scriptures. The Bible. And so the job of the steward of Christ is to dispense the mysteries of God, is to proclaim the mysteries of God. As often has been said, and you've heard this often, I'm sure, that the shepherds of the church are not to entertain the goats, they are to feed the sheep. And that's what Paul is saying here. I'm not, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here to give you a good, a good show. I'm here to proclaim to you the mysteries of Christ, because you know what? The mysteries of Christ will change your life. When you grasp those mysteries, when you truly get a handle on what those are, then you will understand what God wants you to be. And so Paul's ministry was to dispense those, to proclaim those mysteries of God, and we are having the same ministry today. Thirdly, not only... Are we to be servants and stewards, but we're to be trustworthy? Verse 2 is such a precious verse, one that is actually being ignored by many today. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that, they, that one be found trustworthy or faithful, depending on the translation. What does God expect of his stewards? Brilliance, great giftedness, ability, creativity, success. That isn't what Paul says here. Paul says faithfulness. This is time-honored stuff, and goes all the way back to the New Testament, of course, and, and uh, leaderships in the churches throughout the ages have said this over and over and over, that God requires faithfulness, not success. But you know what? There's actually some church gurus today who are saying that God wants success, not faithfulness. They're actually saying that. Now, they wouldn't do, do, say, don't be faithful, but they're saying we must be successful. Who says that? That passage here doesn't say that. Because what does success look like? We're going to look at that here as we move forward. Our success is to be faithful and trustworthy as servants of Jesus Christ. So folks, you, there's not many among us brilliant. There's not many among us that are great. Not many among us that are, are, have all these abilities. He's already talked about that earlier in the book. But all of us can be faithful. All of us can be worthy of trust. Trustworthy. Uh, many years ago, between just before my senior year of, of Moody, I went to a, a summer camp for the whole summer. Uh, so I, I was there all summer, and everybody was there as a counselor was there, for, uh, same as me. They were seniors in, in college and, and getting trained for future ministry. It was, a, it was a big, big, big camp up in Wisconsin. Uh, there was uh, lots and lots of people, lots and lots of mosquitoes, lots of stuff up there. And I, it was a great summer, tough summer. I learned a lot, but it was tough summer. At the end of the summer, uh, the, uh, the, the director of the camp, who now was quite old 
and really wasn't directing anything. He had somebody else doing it, but he was the figurehead, and he was a kind man, and he was there. And at the end of, uh, after all the campers had gone home, uh, for the last day we had a little banquet. And at the banquet he, he brought up all, one by one, each of the counselors and key leaders, and said something really nice about each of them, what they had done for the summer, and so forth. And he said different things about different ones. Um, one girl I remember, he said she had a wonderful smile. And uh, she was so insulted. Is that all I've got is a smile? You know, so, uh, but she was much more than that. But anyway, he said for, for a couple of them, he said, You're, you are faithful. And, there, and he said this, there's no ability like dependability. And I thought about that for many, many years since. You know, because I, I, I knew that to be true, I'm sure. But, but, you know, when you're running a camp and you've got dozens upon dozens of people doing different things, when you're working in a church or a ministry and you've got all these things happening, there is, you, you begin to favor dependability. People who will do what they say they're going to do. People who can be trusted. People who are faithful. People who work humbly. And that's what Paul is saying here. Trustworthy, faithful. This church was an arrogant church and a critical church because they did not understand church ministry. Secondly, because of that, they did not know how to evaluate church ministry. And we picked that up in verse 3. And if you would study this a little more carefully, like I have done, uh, you will find that this first two verses dovetail absolutely perfectly with the next three. And the next three set an agenda for the, the servants of Christ that we needed to know based upon the first two verses of the passage. The responsibility of stewards is to be faithful to their master. We've seen that. But a servant of Christ, now get this, if you want to serve Christ, if you really want to serve Christ, you've got to serve people. You've got to be involved with people. You can't sit at home and read your Bible and listen to podcasts and think you're serving Christ. You've got to be involved with people. People involved in ministry. Paul's going to deal with that in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Listen, you've got to be involved in the body of Christ. You've got to be. And he says when that happens, here, here's the problem. Here's what some people kick back against. The problem with that is when you do that, people, you're going to be criticized. You're going to be evaluated in a critical way. And that's what he wants to deal with in the next Verses. And he wants to say that your evaluation, this critical evaluation, is going to come from three sources. The first source is people. But to me, it's a very small thing that I would be examined by you or by any human court. They are evaluating Paul in a very critical way. And he says to them, and it's hard, this would be hard to say, wouldn't it? How, how many of us could actually say, I don't care what you think and, and really mean it? I mean, a lot of people say that all the time. But when people hurt us and criticize us and say negative things about us, it's hard not to get our backs up, isn't it? And so when he says here, I, it's a very small thing to me that you're, I'm being examined by you or any human court. And meaning that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's quite something to say. You've probably noticed in the Bible that scriptures talk a lot about judgmentalism and about criticism. At the church at Corinth is taking pot shots at the Apostle Paul. Pot shots at him. At his glass house. His talents were being compared with others negatively. His motives were scrutinized. His leadership abilities were questions, questioned and his preaching was mocked. Someone has said it, only, it takes only 10 minutes 
to find in others the faults you've often failed to discover in ourselves in a lifetime. Pretty easy to look at other people and find faults in it. However, we cannot see the hearts of others. So what does God tell us to do? I want us to drop down for just a moment to verse 5. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time. So in verse 5, we're going to go back to that one in just a moment, but he says it's not time for this. Now this does not mean, so I want to balance this. This does not mean that we do not evaluate ourselves. We do not evaluate our leadership. We do not evaluate um, our ministries. He's not saying that. He's not going there. As a matter of fact, uh, I want you to note here that uh, he does evaluate his own self here in, in, the ne in this next verse. He, he's looking at, in verse 4, I, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. He looks at himself. But there's a difference, folks, between proper evaluation and judgmental criticism. Let me give you some examples. Godly evaluation may identify a problem which needs to be addressed. Criticism points a finger and blames others. They did it. Godly evaluation seeks to encourage those who may have done wrong or failed. Criticism seeks to tear down those who have fallen. Godly evaluation seeks to build others up. Criticism seeks to build ourselves up at the expense of others. Godly evaluation is done in love. Criticism is evidence of self-love. Godly evaluation gives the benefit of the doubt. Criticism condemns often on very little evidence. Criticism is rooted in pride, and that's exactly why Paul's talking about it here. The Corinthians thought they had outgrown Paul. Isn't that something? They, they had outgrown Paul. We're going to see that later in the book. They're, they're beyond Paul now. They've outgrown Paul. They're his teacher. And their pride led them to criticize Paul. And Paul says, your criticism, your evaluation of me is not an evidence of your success, your growth. It's an evidence of your immaturity, your babishness in the things of God. So how did Paul handle this? Well, not allowed by allowing the evaluation of others to determine his life and ministry. It, it didn't matter to him too much what people thought. What mattered to him is what Christ thought. That's key to ministry. They did not send him. They did not tell him what to teach. They did not give him the doctrines. They did, they did not give him the mysteries. God did. And he's a steward of God, of Christ, and of those mysteries. A steward is evaluated then by their faithfulness and their faithfulness to the Lord. Some of you have watched the uh, silly little movie, The Princess Bride. And in that show, there's a little piece in there where the, the Sicilian boss keeps saying inconceivable. It's inconceivable. And one of his cohorts after a while says, you keep using that word, but I don't think you know what it, it means, what you think it means. So if I got to plug that into where we are right here, so often people think they know what is right. They know what the right ministry is. They know how to evaluate, and they don't know what they're talking about. And so Paul's trying to help us with that. And he says here, look, you're, if you serve Christ, you're going to receive critical evaluation from others. But secondly, he says you're also going to be critically evaluated by yourself. This is perhaps even a stronger case. He says... 
but to me it's a very small thing that I might be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. So let's look at that for just a moment. Paul says uh, that, that we often evaluate ourselves negatively, but Paul gives us two pieces of advice here. And follow this, if you're serving Christ, this is important to you. First of all, do not examine yourself, he said. Do not evaluate yourself. Now, verse 3 says that. He comes right out. I do not even examine myself, but I want to make sure we understand that because this could be very easily missed. Because didn't the scriptures tell us that the unexamined life is not worth living? No. Socrates said that. Pretty, pretty good quote, though, but it's not in scripture. But Paul did examine himself, and I just pointed that out in, in verse 4. I'm conscious of nothing against myself. He, he wouldn't know he had nothing against himself if he hadn't evaluated his own life. So he's not saying, don't, don't, don't look at your life. He's not saying, don't look at your ministry. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying is this, that while we must examine our own lives, especially in the light of Scripture, it's impossible many times to see ourselves clearly. You, you know that, don't you? Do you know how hard it is to actually see ourselves clearly and not rationalize our sins? Back in the Watergate scandal, uh, one of the, uh, the people involved in that scandal, Jeb Magruder, later on wrote this, we had conned ourselves into thinking that we, we weren't doing anything really wrong. And by the time we were doing things that were illegal, we had lost control. We had gone from poor ethnic behavior into illegal activities without even realizing it. It's so easy to do. We give ourselves those benefits of the doubt. So Paul says, look, don't get all, all wrapped up in thinking that you have the final authority, the final evaluation of yourself. You don't. Let's go on. He says in verse 4, that he not, does not acquit himself by that. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. He said, just because I don't see anything in my life right now that's wrong, although I think I'm doing the right thing, even though I think my motives are right, that's not the final arbitrator. The Lord is, not me. So we walked in by faith, even in our ministry. I, I want to park on that for just a moment. As Paul comes to the end of this verse, before we look at what God is involved in our evaluation, uh, let's look at ourselves. We've seen the evaluation of people, which can be critical. We can see the evaluation of ourselves, which can be very critical or positive. But when, it, when it's all said and done, the evaluation of ourselves or people is not the final arbitrator. So how do we know that we're doing the right thing? How do we know uh, that, that we are, are serving as we should serve? Well, first of all, we look at what Scripture tells us to do, and we follow that. But secondly, we do walk by faith. And I just want to mention that. We walk by faith. We, we don't always know the end game, folks. We don't know the extent of our ministry. We don't know what might come out, good or bad, from our lives. And he doesn't tell us that here. He doesn't tell us we can know. He tells us that we are to be trustworthy and faithful as stewards and servants of Christ, he doesn't tell us here that we can know how that ministry is going to turn out. Let me give you an example, and this is kind of transparent, but let me give you an example. Just recently, I went into a big box store to buy something. As I walked in the store, I ran into somebody who used to go to church here. And as I was talking to this individual, catching up a little bit on their lives and so forth, 
I, I remember this, uh, our ministry to them, uh, hours upon hours of many, many people serving in this person and their family's life. There's just unbelievable amount of time and money and prayer and teaching and, and loving this individual and their family. And then they walked away, not just from the church, but from Christ, just walked away. And they no longer follow Christ. Their life is an absolute disaster. And the scriptures warn us about that. The way of the treacherous is hard. The way of the rebellious is hard. God said that himself in Proverbs. Pretty clear stuff. And so it doesn't surprise me that their life's a total disaster. But uh, as I walked away, and this is where it gets a little transparent, as I walked away, uh, my heart was broken. And I walked to the store, and, and I, I probably would have cried if I wasn't in public. Because I thought about this person. And I thought about the dozens, maybe hundreds of people over the ministry that I've had here and even prior to that who have been taught, who have been loved, who have been ministered to, who have been brought into the body of Christ in ways that, that the Christ, they should have been, who have now walked away from Christ. And every time I see that, every time I get reminded of that, my heart is broken. So why don't I just quit? Sometimes I, that's exactly what I said that day as I was walking through the store. Would my life have been better spent playing ping pong for the last 48 years rather than being a pastor? Maybe, although I'm a pretty bad ping pong player. Uh, so why keep on? If you serve Christ, you're going to see that. You're going to have people that you spent your life in, uh, poured your life into walk away who don't go, go forward for Christ, who have unbelievable disasters for the very reason they're not following Christ. So why keep it up? Why keep doing it? Because we're faithful to him. Because he's called us to be his stewards and to proclaim the mysteries of Christ. And we don't know whose lives can be affected. We don't know that. We don't know that even this individual and their family I was talking about could one day catch, go back to that truth that they know and embrace it and change. We don't know. Our job is not to look at these evaluations and say, well, I give up or I think I'm special or whatever. Our job is to be faithful to Jesus Christ as his servant and as his steward. We walk by faith. We put it in, put it in his hands and we move on. Trusting him. But Paul's not done. Because there is one more evaluator, and this is where it gets good. It's the Lord himself in verse 5. He says this in, well, at the end of verse 4, actually. He says, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Two practical applications that Paul gives us as he pulls this together. This precious passage. Do not pass judgment on the service of others. Don't go on passing judgment. Now, a couple of things here. This is in the present tense, which means they're already passing judgment. And he's basically saying, stop it. Stop it. Secondly, uh, in this particular word Paul is using, is saying that the Corinthians were actually making a final judgment. They had already determined who Paul was and what he was. And there was no way for him to get out of it. And he's saying that it's wrong. 
They were making judgment, he says, before the time. Secondly, second application, leave the judging up to God. So let's go on to verse, through verse 5. Until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. There is a time when our faithfulness and our service will be judged, but that judgment is done by God, and at that time two things will happen. Number one, the Lord will reveal our true character. He will reveal our true character. That's what he says in verse 5 here. He says, he will bring to light the, hidden, uh, the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. I think in the context here, Paul is actually saying, one day you will see my heart and you'll see my motives and you will know they were pure. But quite frankly, when I plug this into my life and maybe when you plug it into yours, uh, I have to wonder how often my motives are that pure. Even in my best of times, my best of, of efforts and service, uh, how pure are my motives? I don't know. I don't know. Even when I'm proclaiming the gospel, maybe I'm doing it for some selfish reason. I don't know. I hope not. I know nothing against myself in that regard, as Paul would say. But, but, the Lord does. There's going to be a time when, he, when the secrets are revealed, he said. When the, when the heart is uncovered and the motives will be seen. You may not know your motives. Matter of fact, you don't most of the time. He does. That's kind of a scary proposition, isn't it? So let's not stop there. Before you get too nervous, let's follow on and see what else he has to say. You have to watch this carefully now. He says, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. It's an intimidating thing if you misunderstand this verse. It's very intimidating. If you believe that one day all the hidden thoughts in your mind, all the hidden little things that nobody else knows about is going to one day be exposed to the universe, right? And all your motives that you may not even know about is going to be opened up to the world. That's intimidating. That's awful. I mean, how embarrassing is that going to be? What a terribly horrible thing to consider. That's not what he is saying. He said, well, you said it, right? Well, not exactly. You have to follow along. Be very careful here. Notice how he finishes up. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. At the moment of that exposure of our hearts and motives, those things that are sinful, those awful things that intimidate and scare us, that we don't want anybody else to know about, that we don't even want to know about, those things will never show up. Why? Because all of our sins if we are Christians, is under the blood of Christ. It's all been forgiven. It's all been removed. And notice here he doesn't say at that point you will be, be judged for your sinfulness and praised for your goodness. He says only the positive, the praise. And he's talked about that exact same thing. We looked at it a few weeks ago in chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. When we stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be rewarded for that which we have done for the cause of Christ, but will not be judged for our failures. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That, that Romans 8.1 is, is just a, a passage we must never forget. There is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, your sins are covered. They're covered in the past. They're covered today. They're covered for eternity. And no one is going to peek into your secret closet and into your heart 
The Lord knows, but the Lord is not going to reveal that because he, he is taking care of that through the blood of Christ. But he is going to give us praise. Notice, this is an unusual verse, isn't it, that the Lord praises us? Can you imagine that? We come here to praise him. But this passage of scripture says that, that there is a time when, when each man's praise will come to him from God when we'll actually receive the praise for what we've done for him as stewards and servants who are trustworthy, uh, there we will be rewarded for those things. As someone recently has said, it is the son of Christ's heart, son, S-U-N, of Christ's heart, not the clouds of my sins that now define me. It's a good statement. A number of years ago, I read a story, a true story, I've given a time or two, that really pulls this together in my mind. There was an old missionary couple retiring from Africa. They'd spent their whole life in Africa. They'd served Christ faithfully for all those years. And now their health is broken. Uh, they have to come back to the States. They have no money, no pension, no savings. Their, their health is pretty much broken. They don't have anybody back here, but they had to come home. And so they took a boat, took a ship, from Africa to New York. And it just so happened on that ship was none other than President Theodore Roosevelt. And Roosevelt had just come back from Africa shooting wild game. And on the, on the ship, everybody was, of course, trying to get in to see Theodore Roosevelt, talk to him. He was a celebrity, of course. And, uh, and the, the missionary couple saw that. The, the husband in particular got very upset. He said, this isn't right. We're coming back from a lifetime of service for Christ in the, in the mission field. And nobody even knows who we are or cares. But all these people are flocking around Theodore Roosevelt who, who just came back from killing wild animals. It really bothered him. And so he stewed almost all the way home. When he got home and they got to the shore or got to the dock, he, uh, it got even worse because on the dock were all of these uh, press people and, and, and fans were out there just loaded waiting for Theodore Roosevelt to come off the ship with his trophies. And uh, the old missionary man is even worse. He says, look at this. Nobody is here. Not a single person is here for me and you. It isn't right. God is not treating us right. They got off the ship and they went into town and they found a little place to stay for a while. And, and he was getting more and more bitter by the moment. And he said, I, I, just don't know, I just don't know about this. That A man goes out and kills animals and everybody loves him and we spend our life serving Christ and nobody cares. And his wife said to him, to her husband, he said, why don't you go in the bedroom and just talk it out with God? And he did. He went to his room and he came out 10 minutes later and his whole countenance has changed. And she, she could tell. She says, what's, what's happened here? He said, well, I was complaining to God. And I said, well, he came home from a, a safari and everybody is, is there for him and loving him and so forth. We come home from 50 years of ministry in Africa and nobody is there for us. Nobody cares. He's come home to a crowd. We've come home to nothing. And as I prayed about it and thought about it, it was almost as if the Lord said, but you're not home yet. You're not home yet. See, that's the thing. We're not home yet. Our service here sometimes works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes 
wonderful things are happening, sometimes not so much. But we don't know. We walk by faith. People may never know, like I mentioned the McEnroe's a while ago, very few people know who they are. But God does. And they're not home yet. But when they are, they'll receive their praise from Christ. Join me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that we really don't know lots and lots of things, even about ourselves and our ministries. We don't even know how to evaluate many of these things, but you do, Lord. And so we place our trust in you, our faith in you, even as you have called us to be trustworthy to you. Father, if there are those today who do not know you as Savior, may this be the day that they are freed from the bondage of sin, and their sins have been wiped out and brought under the blood of Christ. And we pray that today they'll see that great need, and you'll draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.